All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton coming to you today, St. Patrick's Day, to dig deeper into the scriptures, especially the Psalms, as we look at Psalms 7 and 8 today. Psalm 7 is one of those that we don't normally talk about, and it's one that's just not been fairly well used. But it is a very good psalm for us to consider, especially those who are fighting with the issues of being railed against, but for something they didn't do. So here we have Psalm 7. A Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. So we look at the superscription first, and we see this weird word, Shigion, which is only used twice in the Bible. Here in Psalm 7, and then Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, as the Psalm of Habakkuk, which is most of the third chapter of Habakkuk, is there. What does it mean? You tell me, because it's primarily most of the footnotes in your Bibles will have this is probably a musical or liturgical term, because it's only used twice. Then this is against Cush the Benjaminite, which could be, well, one of three possible choices. Could be some guy named Cush, of which we don't have the recording of his words against David. It could be Saul and Cush being a slam against him because Saul was a Benjaminite. And Cush refers to black and could just be the blackness of Saul's soul as he went after David to get rid of him because of the Holy Spirit being taken away from Saul. The third option could be Shimei who was from the household of Saul as he as he cursed David as he was fleeing from Absalom in 2 Samuel 16. Any of these three have your typical responses and defenses. I'd probably just go with the easier one that would be, it's just some guy named Cush, who was a Benjaminite, who had words with David. Now we've gotten through the superscription. Let's actually look at the verses. Looking at verses 1 through 5 to get to the first Selah. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. David faithfully takes refuge in the Lord and declares himself innocent of all the charges against him, of all the need for the wrongdoing against him. But... As Paul says, just because I can't find fault with myself does not mean I'm thereby acquitted. So he says, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, let them overtake me. Let them do justice to me. Let them trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. This is the way we should always look at these type of situations. We may not see 
our fault. And there might not be any fault in us. But that does not make us blameless. That does not make us without sin. What we have to do is acknowledge that, yes, there might be something that we did to cause this. There might be something that we did or did not do that has caused this reaction. And admit it and say, God, if it is one of these things, then let them take care of it. Let justice be done. So we go into verses 6 through 11 now, the next little section of it, where now David is still calling upon God to avenge him of those who are seeking him harm without any wrongdoing on his part that he knows of. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So we have this, arise, O Lord, in your anger and wipe them out. Let the judgment happen now. And then he has a couple of words and phrases that make us cringe a little. Or if not, they should make us cringe a little. He says in verse 8, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in me. How often I have never wanted to pray that, because I know that my righteousness is not all that great. And it definitely does not stand up to God's demand for perfection in righteousness, nor does my integrity. I consider myself to be a very honest person, a very transparent and lay it all out there kind of guy. But again, is it perfect? No. But what righteousness do we have? You and I who have been baptized into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus have the righteousness of Jesus clothing us. We have that white garment given to us showing us that we are members of Christ the crucified and that we have been clothed with Christ. Therefore, we can also say, judge me, O Lord, in my righteousness, because my righteousness is not mine, but it is your son's. And I know that by judging your son's righteousness, you will see it as perfect and will not bring any harm to us. We move to the end of the psalm, verses 12 through 17. If a man does not repent, God will whet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head. And on his own skull, his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. 
So we have here, if a man does not repent of his sins, if you do not repent of your sins, God will ready himself for battle against you. He will wet his sword. He will bend and ready his bow, making his arrows fiery shafts. Why? Because the wicked man conceives evil, is pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to lies. But in God's judgment, in his judgment against those who will not repent, he causes their own schemes to fall on their own heads. They become the victims of their own evil deeds. This is why we seek not only the justice of God, we seek also his mercy, knowing that he does not want the sinner to die, but to repent. So his attacks are not there to kill. They are to bring about disaster enough to turn the heart, which is why sometimes God allows terrible things to happen to us so that we have that moment to pause and consider exactly what this means in our life. Not necessarily what could be worse about it or what could be better about it, but why is this here? This is here because of our sinfulness. And that is what Psalm 7 is about. The sinfulness of man against each other, but also within ourselves. That even though we might not consider ourselves guilty of anything in regards to why people treat us badly, there might be something. We can't say that we are absolutely guiltless in our relationship with anybody. So we call upon this psalm to bring that out to us so that we might say, yes, Lord, we don't see anything in regards to us, but that does not mean that we are without fault. So please be with us. See our righteousness, not for ours, but for Christ, who you have sent to give us his righteousness, because we cannot do it ourselves. Okay, we move on to Psalm 8 now. A very familiar psalm, because this has been brought into musical settings many times. And unlike Psalm 7, Psalm 8 has particular places in the lectionary, especially for the circumcision and naming of Jesus and for Holy Trinity Sunday. So we look at Psalm 8 again, beginning with the superscription, to the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. Again, what is the Giddeth? Probably another musical or literary or liturgical term that we don't have anymore. And there are three times Giddeth is used in the Psalms, the superscription for Psalm 8, Psalm 81, and Psalm 84. Possibly, especially with the way it is to uh, describe here, that it is probably a tune name for the Psalm. And what that tune is, nobody knows anymore, because there are so many different ideas as to how the Psalms were actually sung in the first place whether they were chanted or whether they had some sort of melodical polyphony or something. All right, so Psalm 8, verses 1 and 2, the core message of this psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Why is this the thrust of this psalm? Because God's name is the most important thing in all creation, which is why we have the second commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Or, newer version, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And the first petition of the Lord's prayer, hallowed be thy name. God's name is holy in and of itself, but we pray that it be holy among us as well. And God's name is available to everyone, which is why he can say out of babies and infants, you have brought forth strength. Jesus himself shows this in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. We hear this often in the baptismal rite, especially for the baptism of babies. Because God's name is available to everyone. Let the little children come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. God's name is what is put on us in baptism. God's name is what we rely on when we are in trouble. Not as an expletive to more colorize our language, but a prayer, a plea for him to bring us out of whatever situation we are in, to strengthen us so that we may continue to live in his world. We move on into verses three and four. This is the great philosophical David coming out. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? We look at all the millions and billions of stars and possible planets and all of these other things that are out in the heavens. And then we look at ourselves. Say, what is man that God is mindful of us? Why does God take such care of us when we are so insignificant compared to the earth as a whole? the solar system that we live in, the galaxy, the universe. How is it that God has such care for us? David goes on in verses 5 through 8. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Man is a little lower than all of these great things. The Septuagint translates heavenly beings as angels. But Genesis 1 and 2 show that man is actually greater than the angels. That the angels were brought into being just simply by the word of God. Man himself, Adam, was formed out of the dust of the earth. Eve was formed out of the rib of Adam. God took 
painstaking care to mold and fashion and make human beings the way they are. Everything else in all creation was simply spoken into existence, which is why we can say that man is the greatest of all of God's creation, even greater than the sun, the moon, and the stars, all of that, because all of that simply let there be stars, let there be sun and moon, and let them be for the signs and the seasons and all of that. But here, let us make man in our own image. Let us fashion him from the dirt to bring him to be a living being. So why would we want to go backwards with this idea of the that when we die, we become angels? No, no, no. We do not become angels because that's bringing us down on the creation scale. We simply become us, spirit, at the moment until the resurrection of the body so that the spirit and the body may be joined back together again when Jesus comes back. So we have again verse 9, an antiphon to this repeating the first verse and probably giving us the idea of doing antiphonal singing in the first place and having a bit of the psalm at the beginning and at the end, whether it's inside the rest of the psalm or not, can be seen differently in the uh, different psalms that you see throughout the services, especially the introits, if your congregation uses them. But verse 9, once again, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is more majestic than the name of the Lord? Nothing. There is nothing more majestic, nothing more powerful than the name of the Lord your God. Which is why we, again, have the commandment to not misuse it. The prayer that his name will be kept holy among us as we use it. Because God did not give us his name and say, don't use it. He gave it to us to call upon him in every trouble, to pray, praise, and give thanks. We can't pray, praise, and give thanks if we don't know who we are praying and giving thanks to, who we are praising. So we have the name given to us, that majestic name that is above all names. The name that, as we saw in the Digging Deeper through Exodus, the Moses at the burning bush. Who shall I say is sending me? God says, I am. You know, the name that absolutely means existence. That gives us also our existence. And that is why we praise him. All right, that's Psalm 7 and 8 for us. Digging deeper, taking a few minutes to look at those this week. Next week, we're back to Pro Wrestling America. And then in April, we've got a ton of things going on as we start off April 1st with Monday, Thursday. We will have on the podcast the Holy Week readings, the Passion readings from the four Gospels broken up on each of the days of Holy Week. So I encourage you to be around your podcast around noon. It'll be put out and to be able to hear that as we get ready for Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and especially Easter. And with Easter, there will be the 
running through of the readings, the historic readings from the Easter Vigil service, starting at 7 p.m. and every hour on the hour, coming down to 6 a.m. to hear all the readings of the history of salvation through the Old Testament as we prepare for that glorious time of being able to shout and cheer that our Lord is risen, as we will on Easter morning. So until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen. <music>